Hello, good morning and welcome to the Revolution podcast with your guest host Peter Rollins. Uh, Jay couldn't make it today so he asked me to step in on his behalf and so I thought I would offer you a talk that's based on some of the material I'm currently exploring. Um, I've been exploring this on tour. Uh, also, I'm hoping to write a book on the subject and it's going to be one of the themes of my Wake Festival in April. Uh, if anybody doesn't know uh, what Wake is and you like what you hear, then you can check out my website. It's just basically four days of uh, pub crawls, street art tours, art, live music, and uh, dangerous theological ideas. So the theological idea I want to look at today is actually inspired by something that Tertullian said when he wrote, I believe in the crucifixion because it is absurd. Now, the one thing that most people um, agree with is that there's something profoundly wrong with this statement. There are uh, religious people, for example, who say that they believe precisely because it isn't absurd, that their religion is reasonable, rational, uh, can fit with the latest findings in philosophy and, and, and science. And that actually uh, the reason why somebody can seriously consider the religious perspective is because it makes sense of the world. And then, of course, there are those on the other side who say that no religion is absurd. And this is precisely the reason why we shouldn't believe in any of them. Uh, that the claims of uh, religion in its metaphysical form, uh, beliefs about God, beliefs about our purpose in the universe and the creation uh, don't fit with our scientific and rational uh, worldview. That there's something profoundly irrational about these things. That the arguments for religion um, don't match up to reality. They're self-contradictory. Um, they fall into all kinds of problems. And actually, religion in its various forms should be relegated to the dustbin of ideas. So very few people have actually taken this seriously. One of the exceptions, of course, is Soren Kierkegaard. Uh, but everybody else is thinking, well, okay, the one thing is, if something's absurd, it's not something you should believe in. I mean, it's one thing saying that you believe in something that sounds absurd. Like you could say, well, you know, I believe that, um, that uh, you know, there are snakes in Ireland. I know it's kind of absurd. They say they've never found one, but I think there are. But it's another to believe in something because it's absurd to say that, oh, I believe in square triangles precisely because it's a ridiculous claim. You know, it's, yeah, the, the fact that it's ridiculous just proves it, right? So what might Tertullian mean? Well, in order to understand what the absurd is, uh, the best person to turn to is Albert Camus, the uh, French writer who um, has been associated with the existential movement of the 20th century. The guy who was uh, close friends with and then um, fell out with uh, Jean-Paul Sartre. So Camus is interesting because uh, he writes very perceptively on the absurd. It's, it's his area of expertise. And he has a very precise definition of the word. The absurd has nothing to do with the impossible or ridiculous statements like square triangles or whether God can create a burrito so hot that God can't eat it. The absurd 
is an experience that we have as human beings. Very precisely, it is the experience that results from someone encountering a world that resists our desire for meaning and purpose and significance. So basically, when a being, a human or otherwise, wants to find a universe that uh, puts them at the center, that gives them a sense of why they're here, where they're going, and what it's all about. When that type of being confronts a universe that resists that meaning, the psychological experience is the absurd. Now, uh, Freud talks about this in relation to uh, the child. So the first experience of the absurd happens very early on. When you're an infant, you want certain things. You know, you want food, you want comfort, you want heat. And these things are sometimes denied to you. So Freud calls this desire, uh, this very basic desire for things, the pleasure principle. Uh, it starts off very simply, but it gets a little bit more complicated. When you're a young child, you, you want to win all the games that you play, or you want to watch certain TV programs, or you want to eat chocolate all the time. Whatever it is, you have certain desires, and that's just called the pleasure principle. But part of being human is encountering a world that resists those desires. So you want to you win games all the time, but there are other people in the world who also want to win. And so you have to confront that, the fact that you can't always play the games that you want, or you can't always watch the TV programs that you like. You can't always eat what you want. Or even in terms of your body, you might want to run, climb a tree, you might want to jump over a fence, but your body just won't let you do it. You're too young, you fall over, you don't have the strength to climb a tree. Uh, Freud calls this the reality principle. And at first, when you're young, you think that the reality principle is there to stop you from having fun. So, you know, every time you want to win a game, uh, the reality principle says, well, not necessarily, you know, somebody else might win, or you can't eat everything that you want. And so you feel like you're missing out. If only you could get rid of the reality principle, then you could be truly happy. If only you didn't have school and family with all the rules and all the, all the demands. If only you could kind of like hang out and, and do what you want when you want, then everything would be so much better. But Freud points out that actually the truth is very, very different. The reality principle is not there to stop you from having pleasure, but it's actually the reality principle that allows you to have pleasure. So for example, I remember when I was young, I watched uh, an old Twilight Zone. And in this Twilight Zone, this guy who was a criminal dies and he wakes up in a hotel room and he discovers that he can have everything he wants without limit. So basically, it's a world of pure pleasure principle without the reality principle. It's kind of like having a virtual reality machine that will give you everything you want when you want it, with no world to fall up against, nothing that can hurt you or destroy you. And at first, this guy thinks he's in heaven. He thinks this is incredible. He wins every poker game he plays. He can be with anybody he wants. Just nothing is out of bounds. But of course, you know, it's a twilight zone, so you know, you know where it's going. He, he discovers at the end that this isn't heaven, this is hell. 
Uh, in philosophy, this is actually called melancholia. The, uh, the experience, and Schopenhauer talks about this, the experience of getting everything you want doesn't result in happiness and like a fulfilled life. It results in a profound form of grayness, uh, a, a profound form of one-dimensional life uh, where everything just seems to have no real significance at all. So strangely, we think that the reality principle is preventing us from being happy when actually the reality principle allows you to enjoy stuff, like, for example, climbing a mountain. The climbing of the mountain wouldn't be fun if you could just magically appear at the top. Part of it is training, buying the right equipment, and, and actually doing the walk itself. In doing that, in hitting against reality, the pleasure that you receive um, increases. But I say this is very difficult for us to grasp. We often find that the last thing we want is to experience this absurd, you know, this, this idea of the absurd where we want, we want, we want, and it hits against reality is a problem. And so we conspire. We conspire with religions that um, deal with the pleasure principle. And those religions are secular and sacred. Any, any system that says you can have what you want without the reality principle. You can uh, manifest your desires. The secret is there is no reality principle. You can have what you want. You can fulfill your dreams, whether it's fame or drugs or religion. You know, there is a way in this life or the next to have everything you desire to fulfill your dreams. Now, Freud's response to that is, of course, yeah, go for it, fulfill your dreams. Go get what you want, get what you think will make you happy, because then you'll discover how impotent and horrific it is. You'll understand that your dreams are horrifying, because when you fulfill them, you realize that they don't work. They might make your life a little bit better, but if you think they're going to make you whole and complete, basically if you think that they're going to get rid of this experience of the absurd in your life, then you're going to be sorely disappointed. So on one side, we have name it and claim it religions. We have the secret uh, where you can manifest what you desire. You have people promising everywhere that take the right drugs, have the right car, have enough fame, and then everything will be great. They're the religions of the pleasure principle. Uh, I live in LA and it's, it's the religion of the pleasure principle um, in many ways, because there are prophets in every corner promising wholeness, completeness, promising that you can have what you desire. But there are also religions of the reality principle. And these are religions that say, listen, the pursuit of pleasure is, is it ultimately a tyranny. It doesn't work. The more you desire things and want things, the more you increase your dissatisfaction. What you need to do is withdraw from the world of desire, accept the reality of nothingness. This is the kind of form of nihilism. The nihilist being the one who experiences the zeroness of existence, that there is nothing. There is just life and death. And, um, and you can just accept that. So on one side, there's kind of an extreme form of, he there's a form of hedonism, the pleasure principle, and the other nihilism, uh, the reality principle. Um, now, Christianity has often been uh, put into the pleasure principle mode. Uh, Christianity offers uh, meaning, it offers knowledge, it offers a sense of the divine as the one who can fill the lack in your life, 
who can get rid of the absurd, who can kind of like, who will give you wholeness and completeness, whether it's in this life or in the next life. So that's a very, that's a traditional religious notion of, of Christianity. Um, some have also painted it in light of the reality principle, <clears throat> although I'm just going to, not going to talk about that for now. But what I want to say is actually, I think Christianity is a religion of the absurd. It's not that which conspires with the pleasure principle or the reality principle. Christianity is absurd. And to believe in Christianity is to believe, is to have faith in the absurd. So what does it mean to say Christianity is a religion of the absurd? Well, there's a number of ways you can look at this, but the main way I'm going to look at is through the cross, the crucifixion. Interestingly, um, atonement theories often try to make sense of the crucifixion. They try to fit it into some world of meaning. Um, it's, you know, through ransom theory or through kind of some sort of moral theory. They, they try and give um, a meaningful description of the crucifixion. However, Paul the Apostle talks about it and says the crucifixion is foolishness to those who seek wisdom and a stumbling block to those who want signs. In other words, Paul is saying something about how the crucifixion is fundamentally ridiculous, at least to those people who want to make sense of it. It, it, it defies sense. It defies meaning. Now, one of the reasons why I think so many atonement theories exist is precisely because the cross cannot be domesticated by meaning. So lots of people have lots of different theories and none of them quite stick. Because in a sense, the crucifixion is absurd. Now think of it like this, the, the words Christ crucified that were so important to the Apostle Paul, um, for the original listeners, would have been crazy. The idea of God dying was was like saying square triangle. I mean, we don't kind of hear the craziness of it because uh, we're so used to hearing it. But God was traditionally seen as the strongest, most powerful force in the universe, the one who um, made the, the world, who orders the world, who is in control of the religious, political, and cultural systems. And yet the crucifixion, the crucifixion means someone who is cursed of God. So it means that you're no longer part of the religion. It means you're no longer a citizen. You're no longer under the political regime. And you're crucified outside the city, outside the walls, in uh, where they put the rubbish, the trash. It's where the, the idea of hell comes from. So idea of you, know, you crucify someone naked outside the city. You're not just killing them. It's not just a biological death. It's a symbolic death. Uh, you are the nobodies and the nothings. You're, you're, you're valueless. You are zero. Um, so you, you die symbolically and then you die physically. So the notion of God dying um, in this way uh, just would have struck people as impossible to fully grasp or understand. Now, this is structurally the same as Shoah for, for the Jews. Shua is something that defines meaning. Even the word holocaust is problematic because that means a holy sacrifice. Anyone who says, oh, the holocaust was, was to do with purifying the people or it was um, because of sin uh, or 
you know, any other meaning you give to it is kind of offensive because it defies meaning. It is that which ruptures our sense of meaning. We're seeking meaning in it. We seek purpose in it. And yet it doesn't allow us to find it. Uh, the First World War had the same structural position for European intellectuals. The First World War was absurd. Our desire for meaning and purpose, our, our belief in progress and human development, all smashed against the First World War. It blew up our sense of right and wrong, good and bad. It blew up all of our sense of, um, of, of basically the wisdom of the day. But this also happens in smaller ways. A punk is the absurd in music. It comes along and it blows up all of our ideas of what music is. We don't understand it at first. Going, what is this? These people can't even play instruments. We're, we're seeking meaning within the system of music theory and punk smashes that open. Uh, in art, Dadaism is the same. Data comes in and it breaks apart all of our understandings of what art is. It doesn't so much give us a new um, understanding of art, although it does eventually, but it enters the world as a rupture in the meaning of art. So in the same way that punk gives rise to new musical worlds, Dadaism gives rise to new artistic worlds. But they both initially enter the world not as something you can make sense of, but precisely as that which blows up everything that you could make sense of. Occupy Wall Street is another experience of the absurd, but in the political regime, one of the things that people kept saying is, what do people want in Occupy? What, what are they actually saying? I don't get it, right? But that's exactly the point. The point is that Occupy Wall Street entered the world as a um, manifestation of the absurd, a breaking apart of the existing world, which can, you know, if successful, you know, will lead to new worlds and new uh, frameworks. But initially, it's just a spanner in the works. And this is what the absurd is. We seek meaning. We seek to get it. We seek to, to understand and have purpose. And we encounter something that ruptures that desire. So, you know, even when I'm talking about... Uh, Dadaism or surrealism in art, you go to a, mo a modern art gallery, sometimes your initial experience is, I don't get it. I don't understand it. But that is you getting it. That's part of it. Not getting it is kind of getting it. Um, it's in some respects designed to subvert your whole desire to, ah, I understand this. I get it. Now, for Paul, the two ways that we um, justify our position politically, religiously, culturally, or through wisdom, you know, through a wisdom tradition saying that, you know, our, our system makes sense, or through signs, you know, God is on our side because our football team won or, or we won this battle and God blesses our tanks. But Paul says there is something truly scandalous about the crucifixion and it is that everything we expect, God is that which grounds meaning and purpose and significance dies in a cross, so we are confronted with something that doesn't give us what we want, doesn't give us what we expect. It throws us into the absurd. So the crucifixion is the original punk. It's the original um, data movement. Uh, it's the original Occupy. Uh, there's even a religion called um, discordantism, 
which uh, you know is a kind of an ironic religion that that worships the goddess Discordia, but Christianity and the crucifixion can be seen as the original discordant religion, the original religion that destroys all of our sense of what's right and what's wrong. Now, as an aside. We see this in parables as well. Parables are different from myths because a myth gives you a sense of why we're in the world, what it's about, where we are and where we're going. But a parable is something that disrupts all of our understanding of who we are, what's right and what's wrong and who's good and who's bad, what's pure and impure, what's dirty and what's clean. In a sense, parables dirty our world. They problematize our world. They get us to see things in, in new ways and open up new possibilities. Now, technically, I think Tertullian is wrong by saying that he believes because of the absurd. I think it would be better to say, I have faith in the absurd. Uh, because you can, you can only believe in rational things. I mean, belief is about giving your assent to something that makes sense. Whereas the very definition of the absurd is that it doesn't make sense. But the word faith is not, has nothing to do with belief. It has nothing to do with epistemology. Um, I would argue, uh, and here I agree with Tillich, is, uh, is to do with concern. It's to do with a commitment to something, you know, um, a, a bodily engagement. So, for example, love. You might uh, you know, know why you love somebody. You might even think you don't, but you do in your being. You love is this radical commitment to someone where you will live and you will die for them, whether or not you intellectually believe that love even exists. You might go, oh, it's just a you know biological, physiological thing. But still, love is that which binds you to something. So what does it mean to be bound to the absurd? Well, in a sense, that's saying that you have faith that... Uh, new worlds are possible, that this world can be broken up and new worlds can happen. And so whenever the absurd happens in music or in art or in politics, uh, there's a possibility of something wonderful coming out of that. To have faith in the absurd is to say, I embrace this space between the pleasure principle and the reality principle. I embrace that. I give myself to it. Now, what does that mean? Well, for Camus, he says that the revolutionary is the one who is obsessed with uh, the pleasure principle. Well, they're, they're obsessed with changing the, the, the unlived life, changing the world, creating a new utopia. So maybe someone's always looking for the next best thing, the next relationship, the next uh, political movement. They're always, they're, you know, you'll probably know these people. You might be this person yourself. You're never living your life as it is. You're always living for tomorrow. There's always something better over the horizon. But for Camus, this revolutionary type of life ultimately doesn't work. It always ends in disappointment. We're either disappointed because we don't get what we want or we get the new world, the new relationship, the new thing, and it doesn't ultimately satisfy us. On the other side, there is the conservative who tries to conserve the world that is, who doesn't care about changing the world, doesn't give themselves to new possibilities. They, they know that the revolutionary is misguided in the sense that they know that some new utopia is not possible. There'll be better worlds maybe, but we never know for sure and there'll be no world that's perfect. It's just like there is just the world and so the conservative gives up the revolutionary pursuit. 
But then Camus talks about the rebel. And the rebel is the one who is kind of like the revolutionary, but they live in the absurd. They basically embrace the fact that that movement never ends. There is no utopia where we can sit back and go, we got it. We changed the world and this is the way it is. But rather, um, they take the dissatisfaction that the revolutionary has and instead of trying to fill it, they embrace it. They go, the revolution, the, the rebel says, it's like James Dean obviously is the ultimate rebel, that you ask, he, you know, what are you rebelling against? And the rebel says, what do you got? What do you got? Right? It's like rebellion is part of my existence. The, the, the conservative tries to get rid of the lack they feel by renouncing the world, by embracing nihilism. The revolutionary tries to get rid of the lack that they feel by filling it with some new world. The revolutionary takes this lack that is created um, by the, the fighting of the pleasure principle and the reality principle. They take that lack and they embrace it. They take their dissatisfaction and they become satisfied in it. They fight for new worlds and new possibilities. They try to see new things happen, not because tomorrow they'll be satisfied and complete, but because the very act of rebellion is where they find pleasure and satisfaction, that they're not pursuing the ultimate, the ultimate revolutionary utopia and they're not giving up on life. They turn away both from the nihilism of the reality principle and the pure hedonism of the pleasure principle and they live in and embrace the absurd. Now, in practical terms, uh, that means that you embrace life and its difficulties. You know that that's part of it, but you find a way of taking the sting out of those difficulties. You try to take those frustrations and make them into fuel that, that make a better world. Um, in theology, this can be called realized eschatology. It's the idea that there's this sense of the kingdom of God is always in the future, but it's here and now in your acting towards it, in your very acting to bring in a new reality, a new way of life, a new way of being. You're actually instantiating that. You're actually already in it, in some sort of aroma way. You're kind of like, it's there and yet not yet. It's always to come. In your fight for liberation and freedom and democracy, you're somehow expressing something of freedom and liberation and democracy. Even those, those things lie in the future. And this is why, in a way, the Buddhists say, um, if you meet the Buddha on the road, kill him. Because in a sense, if the Buddha is there in front of you, that's not the Buddha. The Buddha is always to come. If you meet democracy on the road, kill it, because it's not democracy. As soon as someone says, we have democracy in this community, we have freedom in this community, you can rest assured that it's not. It might be good, it might be better than what went before, but it is not freedom and democracy and liberation in its pure form, because there is something of that which is always still to arise, still just over the horizon. Um, this is called deconstruction, by the way. Deconstruction is the idea that um, justice is something that we're driven towards, but every concrete manifestation of justice can be critiqued and pulled apart 
not because we hate justice, but, but, but because we love it so much. That's why Derrida talked about the difference between the law and justice. He said the law is our attempts to make justice real in the world at its best. At its best, our laws are there to, to um, instantiate liberation and freedom and justice. And yet every time we write a law, it's not just. It falls short. Hence, the law has to always be rewritten and re-engaged and reinterpreted. So the law is not justice. But without the law, we would have no way of talking about justice. So somehow we're stuck with the law, but the law is driven by something that it does not have and it does not um, define. Um, in mystical terms, this is the notion that God is hypernonymous, that we are called by something we cannot name. Uh, that our word, like, so an anonymity means you don't know something because there is a lack, but hypernimity is you don't know something because there is an excess. That, that you are caught up in something, saturated by something that you cannot grasp, that you respond to and that, that drives you, but that cannot be pinned down. So there you go. Those are just some provisional thoughts I'm giving you uh, with jet lag because I'm just back from six weeks traveling. Um, so I hope they made some sense to you. But in a nutshell, I'm saying that we often try to get rid of this sense of the absurdity of life by either going and conspiring with religions, secular and sacred, that promise us pleasure and wholeness and completeness. Or we conspire with those industries that promise that they can help us just give up on life, you know, uh, withdraw from existence. But that actually the rebel is the one who embraces the lack and the difficulty, who embraces the absurd, who has faith in the absurd, who says, actually, that's where life is, not in thinking there's some utopia we can create or in just giving up on life, but in saying that we're constantly engaged in recreations of the world, that things happen that break apart how we understand things. Things happen that break apart our understandings of right and wrong, good and bad, inside and outside, pure and impure. And when this happens, these projectiles that smash into our world open up new possibilities um, and that we are committed to those. And interestingly, the crucifixion is exactly that. That Christ crucified is the original punk move. It's the original thing that blows apart everything we understand about the divine. God is not found in the pleasure principle. God is not the object that will fill the lack. In the crucifixion, we discover a God who is in the absurd itself. To embrace the crucifixion is to embrace the idea that God is not this object that will fulfill us, make us whole, make us complete. But rather God is found precisely in the unknowing, in the doubts and the frustrations and the difficulties of life, in the grit and grime of the world. Just to finish with one concrete example of what this looks like. Um, I've never got sports I've never understood it because nobody ever wins. You know, when I watch football, nobody ever wins football. I mean, people win games. They even win big games, but nobody ever wins the football, which I'm guessing that's what they're playing for. You know, it just goes on forever and ever and ever. For me, it would make much more sense if there was one super, super bowl where it was finally decided who was the best team. And then we stopped the game and we invented a new one. But then a friend of mine, Trip, 
he said to me, Pete, you get it all wrong. That, that, that the enjoyment of football isn't in the wins. That's part of it. But actually, the enjoyment is also in the frustrations, in sticking with your team through thick and thin, of seeing them win matches and lose matches, of knowing the story of the players and the story of the managers and the story of the, of the team itself. And that actually you get enjoyment from being with them through thick and thin. This is the rebel. You know, the revolutionary would only be happy when the team wins the ultimate game. The conservative gives up entirely, doesn't care about the game at all. But the rebel is the one who enjoys the, the movement itself, the ongoing and everlasting kind of games, highs and lows, who isn't looking for the ultimate win. So a question you can ask yourself is, who am I? Am I someone who tends to renounce life, embracing the reality principle? Or am I someone who is constantly running away from my life, trying to embrace the pleasure principle, trying to find something that ultimately works, never happy with enjoying the, the journey itself? And then asking yourself how you might cultivate the spirit of the rebel in your life, how you might be able to turn some of your frustrations into something that is positive, something that you can use, rather than always trying to avoid them repress them and escape them. Thanks for listening to my thoughts on the absurd. If you want to find out more, um, I've got some videos on my Facebook uh, that explore it and also some stuff on my website. Thanks very much. Bye-bye.